and welcome to this week's episode of Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. My name is Caitlin, and I really love torrential downpours. That's probably an inappropriate thing to say today, considering what's going on on the East Coast. I mean, we could use it here. The mountains are literally on fire. With that said, I adore snowfall, and I think that would also help the situation. What's your name? Oh, do I need a name? Um, I can be Cameron. That could be my name for today. I'm Kristen, and I love ball lightning, which I just learned is a real thing no one understands. I'm Alyssa, and I like dust devils. I am Ben, and my favorite weather phenomenon is uh, airbending. (laughs) I I can do it. Of course, that makes sense. So are you going to be trying out for that new live Netflix airbender series? I'm actually in it. Oh, yeah. He inspired it. They found it in real life. <laughs> he is the avatar. <laughs> don't tell anybody it's a secret. I can pass as a 12-year-old. I don't grow facial hair yet. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this week, we are talking about brainstorming techniques. So let's just start with an easy question for all of us. How do you start brainstorming? And I just well, want to throw a shout out to Ben, who I'm sure brainstorms with clients all the time, but he's also a, a good writer. For me, I usually just start to brainstorm with a concept, like a character or a plot or a setting. Um, for my personal writing, that is. As writers, we all get ideas all the time. They're everywhere. Ideas are a dime a dozen. And inspiration can come from anywhere, but there's hardly an original idea left in the world of fiction. So once you get those ideas, though, you can combine them and formulate them. They turn into your own story, your original corner of this world of fiction that we're contributing to. So like if your brain is empty, it's hard to do any type of storming whatsoever with it. So my best advice is to just fill it up with stuff. So I usually like to start building a concept and brainstorming with research So, like, say you're creating a magic system based on drawing. My advice would be to go research bizarre ways that people have drawn things throughout history. That's, like, basic brainstorming research. You can find tons of ideas and inspiration just for that one thing alone. And that's what I like to do for myself, in my writing at least. I think usually brainstorming starts with, like, a concept like dragons in space or like a, a cool science concept that you heard about on the radio or a historical event that you stumble across or a scary dream. And like Ben said, an idea is just an idea unless you actually write it down and deepen it and think about like the ramifications of that cool science concept or taking it a step further or two characters. Sometimes brainstorming starts with a character idea or a voice idea. And then it doesn't turn into a story until you start thinking, who would be best friends with this character? Or what would be the worst possible situation for this character to be put in? Or who would be a great antagonist or a foil for this person? Yeah, it's the follow-up questions, I think, that really make a brainstorming session, I guess, worth it. Something that I think is really interesting. So I started working at a radio show, writing for them a couple of weeks ago. And something that we're told to ask every time we start a story is to ask ourselves, who cares about this story? Why this story? And why now? And I think while that's especially relevant for news, it's also really important for a book because at least for me, I need to know my audience when I start brainstorming. I need to know, I guess, what sort of tropes are best going to fit in, what I want to subvert. And so I think getting kind of a wider picture of what I'm writing as well is really helpful to coming up with ideas. Especially since like in CrossFeed, I think sometimes maybe there's a stigma that if you're going to look 
pay too much attention to your audience is that that can be limiting as to what you're allowed to write. But I think if you're brainstorming correctly and you're doing research on your audience, you, you know, so I have this idea and I think this audience would like it. Then you can look at that audience and say, oh, but that suggests this other thing that would actually work really well and the two can feed off of each other. It can also help you to see if things have already been done. One of the most helpful things a writing teacher ever told me was just, if you can't think of anything to write, just start writing something and your brain abhors a vacuum. So it will fill your mind with something eventually when it gets bored. So for me, one of the most helpful ways I found is I just love answering writing prompts. You know, the the little things you see on Facebook, those are fun just to get kind of the thoughts moving. I mean, that's like kind of the basis of discovery writing where instead of doing, I mean, I think maybe a lot of us are coming at this from a more planner side. It's true that your brain just starts coming up with stuff as soon as you engage it. So if you don't have a stellar idea, just start writing. <laughs> I would say one of the things that I worked with a lot when I was working with the advertising agency that I did an internship with was that when when you're brainstorming, I'm not saying there's no such thing as a bad idea ever, but when you're brainstorming, there's no such thing as a bad idea when you're trying to get somewhere. At least half of the stuff we ended up selling to clients started with some really dumb idea that someone dared mention in a brainstorming meeting and the whole room laughed and we all said, what a dumb idea. And 15 minutes later, that dumb idea had turned into something that we were going to sell. Going along with that is, so I just thought of this when Cameron was talking, but there's a book that I really like called Design Your Life. And the whole thing is trying to make yourself happy. It's not super relevant to writing, except for the fact that have you do this exercise where you start with a word and you basically make a word tree with like associations, really. And it takes you from like something that maybe is just something very simple, like, I don't know, happiness, right? And then you end up with like pirates. So I think some of that is really like a leap. <laughs> Logical. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But but I think doing stuff like that is also really helpful with, with brainstorming where it's just like free association. And with both those, it's really important to, like Cameron said, not reject ideas out of hand because you really can't tell how deep that idea is until you go through the ramifications. So in brainstorming, it's important to just turn off your inner editor and just get stuff down and then you can look through what you want to keep later. Especially if you're trying to write in a really crowded market. So like I like writing stuff about vampires. It's kind of been done to death in the last couple of decades. So when trying to figure out what on earth I'm going to add to this conversation, you just go you just go weird. You just ask what have what about this have people not looked at? We've kind of talked about this a little bit already, but how do you improve the quality of your brainstorming session? Like instead of it just being um, words coming out of a vacuum, I guess. How can you use your time wisely? I mean, I know at least for me, my time that I have to myself is kind of sacred because (laughs) most of it is like there are little children screaming all over the place or like I'm running errands or whatever. I don't have a whole lot of time to write. And so most of my writing time is spent like getting word count out. And so I need to come ready to go. So how do you improve the quality of your brainstorming to make sure you're ready to go when you're writing? Well, one small tip is just to change the physical location where you write. I, I hate having a routine. I hate doing the same thing over and over again. So I try to study in different places or go right outside in a different place in my yard or at the library. And sometimes the new environment helps things feel exciting. I don't know. It's just a mental thing I have. I don't usually write at home either, but I think it's more about compartmentalizing than <laughs> being excited. But I usually, I talk out loud. Like I'll sit my husband down and be like, I need to process something out loud. Or I need to talk to you about this concept in my book. And he knows that he's supposed to just be quiet and listen to me talk. And so 
<laughs> it really helps me for some reason just to talk because usually I think we write things down and we have like bullet points or like it's really easy to to doubt your own thoughts or whatever if you see them on paper, but talking out loud helps. I think a lot of times talking out loud forces you to put what you're thinking about in different words. And so even if whoever, so if you can find someone to talk at, it's great if there's someone like in a great writing group who can, you know, help you brainstorm. But even if it's just, you know, your roommate who doesn't have a writer bone in their body, just having someone for the words to bounce off of can help you make connections that you were missing before. Yeah, I think a lot of this comes down to kind of knowing yourself and what works for you or discovering it. Because like, like Aaliyah's advice about finding a new place to write would never work for me. I need somewhere where like I have said, this is my writing spot. This is how I write. Or like, I really personally love whiteboards. Like I get my best planning done when I have a whiteboard in front of me, which makes absolutely no sense. But it's something that I've learned about myself. And so I think it's partly knowing what works for you and also training yourself. So things do work for you. That really helps. Practice is huge, like you said at the end there. Yeah, for me, I feel like the quality of the brainstorm improves as you practice. Absolutely. You're not going to be an expert brainstormer the first time you sit down to write a book. But I mean, just like with everything in life, the more you do it, the more you understand what elements you need to create and and where those elements need to be placed in your story. The more you do it, the better you'll get. For me, the quality of a brainstorming session is directly proportional to how well prepared I am when I go into that session. I'm not going to just be able to whip ideas out of this brainstorm if I haven't been thinking about those ideas or those concepts or people or histories or, or whatever for a while beforehand. So being prepared is massive when you go to sit down to structure those ideas that you want to put into your story. But if you're stuck in your own head, yeah, absolutely. Talk with someone, say things out loud, write down your ideas, search for inspiration. I think one thing that helps me with brainstorming is, and and being prepared when I actually sit down to put all the ideas together, is being organized. I do all of my organizing in OneNote, which is fabulous. I have like a separate book for each book that I'm writing. It's organized into books. And then I have sub pages for like world building or character or plot. And I have a bunch of different things. And so as I am brainstorming, I can just jot down notes and say, I have this idea for a scene, or I have this idea for a world building twist. I have this idea for this character arc. And that way it's all organized in a way I can go back and look and see what I have and then also see what I'm missing. And so what I need to plug together in order to make a complete story idea. I think something else that does help is having somewhere to jot down ideas as they come to you. So like, I really like my notes app on my phone, but I also I, have yeah, a physical not. notebook. Never? No, I said I use the notes app. On oh, my- all the time, right? All the time. It's a brilliant invention. I actually have my OneNote connected to my phone. So all of them go straight oh. into like that book, whatever it is. That's really smart. <laughs> One last plug for that. If you have a good idea, write it down because five minutes later, you may get out of a test and you will no longer have a good idea. <laughs> there is there a story yeah. there? <laughs> or there could have been. There could have been a story. There could have been a story. <laughs> I wanted to share an apocryphal story about J.K. Rowling, about how she brainstormed. I've heard this, and I don't know where I even heard it, that she had a box for each Harry Potter book. And then as ideas came for her to her, she'd write it down on a piece of paper, and then she'd throw it into that box. And so when she was ready to write the book, she had a box full of notes about what was supposed to be in it. I mean, even if that Very didn't organized. happen, that's actually a really cool idea. So Anyway, I, another thing I wanted to say about brainstorming is that you don't always have to feel like you have to sit down and do it, like in order for it to count. A lot of the best brainstorming that comes to me is when I'm doing something else, when I'm running or um, when I'm driving, I I set aside the time and say, I'm going to be brainstorming during this time, but like having something to do with my hands or like, I don't know what it is, but I have different kinds of brainstorming 
that happen when I'm actively doing something else at the same time. So just a thought. Well, I just want to say that for one thing about finding inspiration, the internet is a wonderful resource. And I particularly like Pinterest. Um, I also have Tumblr. Like anytime I see an interesting website, I'll bookmark it in like a little writing folder so I can go back and find it. And I think kind of gathering inspiration from the world around you is something that's really, really useful. A lot of people do um, soundtracks for their books. And that's something that I like because music along with those pictures and everything that you've collected in your folder, they can just snap you back into the mood instantly. And that just Mm -hmm. saves so much time. Especially if you have like music tracks that you only listen to when you're doing specific activities. So I have like, I'm not, I'm not that quite that faithful with, with the writing tracks, but there's like certain ones I listen to this, like the it's always the first track I listen to when I start writing. So it helps my mind you know, get into that mode. It can be a really powerful thing. So there's a different one. So there's a there's a playlist of things that I only listen to while I'm running. And if I happen to turn that on by accident when I'm not running, I can instantly feel my heart rate go up. So it, if it's if you need a little bit of extra way to train yourself to get in the mindset, specific music tracks that you like that you reserve just for writing can be a really powerful tool. See, I can't r- listen to music when I'm writing because I don't know if I have like sensory processing disorder or something, but I can't pay attention to writing while I'm listening to music. I have the exact same thing. I cannot concentrate on writing if there is music happening because my brain automatically just tunes into the song and follows the song rather than the train of thought that I had, even if there are no lyrics. It's just... Poor souls. Oh, wretched existence. Not really. I think another thing about generating new ideas and inspiration is just consuming other media. Yeah. Because even though you yeah. don't want to copy other media, the feelings that you have as you watch or listen or read, or I, I thought of the example of this this American Life podcast. It was this guy who had been struck by lightning and then he recorded himself hiding from a lightning storm in his car. And he's just trying to figure out what's wrong with him and like has PTSD and a bunch of other stuff. And the storm gets so awful that you can hear the rain, like just hitting his car so hard that it drowns out his voice. And it was one of the most crazy, amazing, made me cry segments. And you guys who know me know it's really easy to make me cry. But (laughs) I just wanted to put something like that in one of my books, not the same situation, obviously, but to to have that emotional strength. And so I went back and listened to the podcast and was like, what is it about this that made it affect me so much? And because I would like to affect my readers like that. I think artists learn by studying masters and we need to kind of do the same thing, especially the analysis part, I think is the important bit. You figure out why something made you feel that way so you can take those steps and incorporate them. One of the main thoughts I have on that is just how powerful how powerful of stories there are in the world already. And sometimes when I'm feeling like my storytelling well is empty. I like to just talk with people around me. There are such crazy, wonderful people on buses and at the grocery store. And, you know, the better you are at studying people, the more realistic and weighty and authentic your writing is going to be because you'll be able to pull those characters from real life and put them on the page. Overcoming writer's block is our next thought. How do we overcome writer's block? Well, um, <laughs> this is a really good question. I think, I think the problem is writing... At least for me, when I have writer's block, it's usually because I've written myself into a corner and I can't think of something next because it doesn't feel authentic to the story that I'm trying to tell. So when I can't think of anything, it's usually a sign that I need to go back and fix something I have written. So sometimes that will involve retconning some of my plot. So I I have a tool that I need to solve the problem 
or fixing somebody's reaction. So, so for me anyway, it's generally something is wrong in the manuscript I already have and I need to fix that. Yeah, the same is true for me as well. Definitely hit that wall. For me, I, I usually have to switch to a different project for a little bit before I have clear enough eyes to see where I went wrong. But definitely it's, it's really hard for me to move forward until that wrong thing is fixed. And so I just like to try some other writing prompts or have a couple projects going at a time is what I found works for me. So I realize that this kind of thing does not work for everyone. It might be actually harmful for some. But for me, deadlines are a fantastic way to get myself writing when I don't want to be. I'm using right now I'm using a it's like a gamified website called For the Words. And it's a you you must write every day 444 words before midnight or you don't get your points for the day. And at least for my brain, having a deadly, deadly, daily deadline. (laughs) Deadly deadline. A deadly deadline. A deadly daily deadline. Sounds like a lemony snicket book that didn't get written. (laughs) Just gets you you in a place where it's like, all right, well, it might be awful, but I have to write. So I'm just going to start writing. And then more time, more often than not, even if the beginning is garbage, by the end, it's at least not a complete waste of time. So that's a really important thing to, to remember, though, is that even if it's not good, you're getting it out and you're writing. Like for me, mm-hmm. personally, I mean, I mean, this might offend people, but I don't actually really believe in writer's block, capital W, capital B. There are things that really do prevent a writer from moving forward, but those things aren't this giant black wall in your mind. Unless, you know, for you, it actually does mentally manifest as this giant black wall. There are really just specific challenges that you have to hurdle in order to move on. So sometimes a writer can be afraid to finish the last chapter of a book, but that's something that you can overcome by just allowing yourself to let it be bad the first time. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you've written yourself into a corner, like you said before, and you don't know how to work yourself out. But again, that's something that you can allow yourself to be bad at the first time around. And you go back and fix it later once you're done with the book. Sometimes you sit down and you have no idea what to write. But that's more of a question of if you come to the table prepared with enough brainstorming material to put down words on the page. So like, my main point here is to just not be afraid to let your writing be bad the first time. And you can get it out. And you have, like Cameron was saying, like having that daily deadline is important. It's vital to you getting down the words that you need to get down. But you also have to come to the table with enough to go on. So don't blame this ethereal writer's block for not getting any work done, which bugs me so much when <laughs> people say, like, I've had writer's block lately. I haven't gotten anything done. And I'm like, no, you haven't had writer's block lately. You're just not willing to let yourself be bad enough to get it done and move on. That's my philosophy on that. So what do you feel about saying there's there's no such thing as like this monolithic writer's block that can just be a problem that really there's some other problem that you haven't identified yet? There's actually a really great podcast about fear and anxiety in writing that came from Writing Excuses. I'll put the link in the podcast notes, but it talks about how a lot of times when we don't feel like we can write, it's because we're afraid, like Ben is saying, or there are other things going on in our lives that make it difficult to focus. And so like, I know that people who struggle with like depression or like other things that make it hard to function, like sometimes that affects your writing too. take care of yourself and make sure you're okay. And don't beat yourself up if you're in a moment where you can't. I think it's also really important not to call it like I, I agree with Ben, actually, it's not like this external thing that is imposed on you. It's yeah. always your choice to sit down at your desk and write. Yeah, absolutely. But definitely, I don't, I don't mean to offend anyone or be insensitive to those with disabilities or mental health issues. Oh, not at all. Nobody thought you were. I just figured. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. No problem. That is a really important distinction, though, that it's something in the writer's control. Absolutely. That's my that's my belief. Always when you're, when you're in a healthy state, it's always in to, to tackle that challenge. And you either can come out 
with a strong piece of writing or you've written something that has allowed yourself to move forward. Either way, because you can move on to the next part of your book that you really want to write. Okay, so we should probably move on to the second part of our podcast. Just a quick review. We try to be non-prescriptive. Sometimes Ben gets super prescriptive because he can't help it. No, it's okay. (laughs) He has the right to. Our rule is that Ben is allowed allowed to be prescriptive. As long as that's okay. Yeah, Yeah, you're allowed. Actually, we've had people say that they wish our guests were more prescriptive. I think that in my view of things, like if we're trying to model good writing group behavior, I would not want my writing group to be prescriptive. And so I think as long as we say Ben's the one who's prescriptive and the rest of us aren't, then we're good. (laughs) Um, If you'd like to check out the text of the submission, it'll be on our website, which is litservicepodcast.wixsite.com slash litnation. And if you want a first chapter critique from us, there are details on how you can do that on that same website. So the summary for this week, our main character is a legend is what they're called. It seems kind of like a person who's crossed with a legendary sort of creature. So she has special powers and she is in sort of a post-apocalyptic situation where legends came out and they went into a war with humans and the legends lost and they're in, we're not, I'm not really sure what kind of situation they're in, but she gets asked to go do a dangerous mission in Long Island at the very end of it. And she's worried about that to go fight the humans, I guess. That was a really, there's a war (laughs) happening. Sorry. Yes. I should have said that. The first line of the submission is really snappy. It um, so it's the fastest way to a guy's heart is between the third and fourth ribs. I thought that was funny. Fantastic. And sets the tone both for what kind of main character this is. And also, like, just from that first line, I'm like, this is going to have romantic elements, probably. And it's going to be like a Romeo and Juliet situation, but with more angst and guns and stuff. That's my... <laughs> that's More like, angst than Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> I mean, like, modern angst. There's plenty of angst in Romeo and Juliet. I did like this first line. I don't really say that a lot in this podcast. I think every single podcast I've been on so far, I've said that I didn't like the first line. But I did like this first line, so that was good. Yay, you win! Ben is impressed. (laughs) However, I'm going to put an addendum on that. That I did think that the first paragraph could have used a little bit more. The last sentence is a little vague, hints at what's going to come, but I felt a little confused at the end of the, of the of the first paragraph, wondering like, so a bullet is the best thing to a guy's heart, which is between the third and fourth rib. But if she's got something better, doesn't that make it the best thing? So like, where's this going? I don't know. It was like confusing in my head and made me think about it for a long time. And then I finally moved on to the second paragraph. All right. So other things that we like. I liked that there were unusual kinds of monsters. So it kind of has a supernatural feel. But instead of just werewolves and and what have you, they're, I don't know if they're Greek or if they're made up words, but they were cool for these different kinds of monsters. With None, of them were what, None of them are what you would, I guess, like call A-lister supernatural creatures. Right. They're not the ones you normally right. see in stories. There's a dolphin guy. And that's yeah. awesome. <laughs> A pink dolphin guy, which a is even cooler. guy who kicks butt, yeah. I keep wondering what he's going to do in Long Island, because he's going to be her handler. Is he going to go be a dolphin? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I really liked that about it, too. I feel like there was some really good world building that gave me enough information that I knew we were dealing with lots of different kinds of superpowery things, but I didn't feel like I needed to know how it worked yet. But I assume that there's going to be like a, a classification system lately, and I'm I'm looking forward to it rather than needing it already. So I thought there was some really cool, like thoughtful strategizing here because our main character, who I think you pronounce Azriel, not sure about that one, but she's kind of Medusa-like in that she, yeah. if you look at her, you die and. So I thought it was really cool that like 
she flips on some lights to disable like night vision stuff. So people have to look directly at her. And it was just like a smart way to fight and a cool mixing of tech and magic, which I always like. I agree with that. I liked that a lot. I really like the description of her like transformation from looking just human to like her hybrid, whatever ish form. I thought it was detailed while still staying tasteful. Yeah, I like that. The transformation into the cockatrice was really cool. There's this, so these legends, they're battling against the humans, and there's this moment where one of the main characters is trying to rescue a baby monster, and the humans actually end up killing it. And I thought that was a really good choice from a literary standpoint because it made me identify with the monsters more than the humans. I actually feel like the the first chapter did a really good job of hanging lanterns on what the core conflicts of this book are going to be. I feel like there's obviously a monster versus human thing going on. And then we have a, should I be killing things or should I not? And like, what do I have to do to myself in order to do that thing? And there's also another one. And I'm looking at the notes to see what they are. Someone save me. Anyway, there's lots of really good dialogue that shows backstory rather than having it be info dumped. I agree. I feel like in addition with world building not being info dumpy, we get just good glimpses of the character's motivations, especially Nox's as he goes to save the baby monster and he wants to protect legends while the main character just wants to get out. Unless there's something else we want to say for positives, let's move to things that might need a second look. So one thing I think that I struggled with in this submission is that I felt like I was missing important information to help me understand Azrael's kind of really strong emotional reactions. So like near the end of the submission, she gets assigned to Long Island and there's this really, really sharp turnaround in how she feels about it. But I don't know anything about Long Island or her personal Mm -hmm. experiences and she doesn't think about it. So it didn't really make sense. It didn't feel authentic because I didn't have any idea why she felt that way. Yeah. I feel like kind of and the same thing slightly on a larger scale is I had difficulty you know understanding the stakes so we know we know that the legends quote unquote lost the war but I don't know what that means because it doesn't seem like well if they lost it doesn't seem like the humans are that well off either because New Orleans is a wasteland and this city is it has at least enough legends yeah. in it that, that that were worried about them getting overrun lost isn't enough detail for me in that in that in this instance i need to know more about the general i'm going to use a word geopolitical situation yeah we're like all of the monsters like concentrated into new orleans and then new orleans was destroyed and so they lost or i needed a lot more maybe backstory but like grounding yeah absolutely grounding and i think i think what it was lacking was a lot of just sensory setting details which could have aided in that a lot like at the very beginning of this submission may have been even in the first page we get this image of just pieces of metal shooting up out of the ground like claws which was a really cool visual and for like this post-apocalyptic world that the author has built really a really cool broken world but i wanted to see more of that more of the world building more of the just desolation and destruction and descriptions of how those things happened and why they happened and what went on in the background before this story happened and obviously not like a huge info dump of what went down not like a prologue style or anything just little pieces here and there to to pull us along until and, and give us all the information that we need to know until you're ready to tell this backstory of what actually happened. So I'm admittedly par- saying this partly just to annoy Kristen, but I, I got flashbacks to like Force Awakens in that it's obvious that there's stuff going on. Yeah. But I'm missing just enough, just a little bit more detail to really understand what the situation is. The annoyance I- worked. <laughs> you have a point. <laughs> I'll agree with that. And 
I think for me, I was just really intrigued by this whole premise and the characters you have set up in the conflicts that I would be willing to take a lot more before I got bored. So when when we moved from this battle scene and we've just kind of been introduced to the world to this part where suddenly she's being sent on another mission, I felt like I wasn't quite ready for that jump yet because I was still trying to find my footing in the world. And I don't feel like it it would be boring if there was more information there. I feel like there's enough raw, good material here that it could be stretched out quite a ways before I got bored. I think I felt that um, disconnect as well. We got all of like this battle scene with world building and a little bit of backstory. And then they get back to their base camp. And I'm like, okay, here now that she's going to explain what's going on. But that doesn't happen. She goes and mm-hmm. takes a nap. And then there's no fallout from their losing their mission. Like, I'm not sure yeah. what it means. There's a really weird disconnect there where we know that, like, she's introduced as I was sent by myself to save the city. We know we, later she has a partner, but it's like, I was sent to save this entire city. And then she fails and gets back and just kind of wanders around and takes a shower and nobody's asking what the heck happened. There is no urgency with that failure besides her being worried that she doesn't get to leave because she failed. No one around her cares. Which I actually felt a little bit... Like, I wasn't sure about urgency through the whole submission. She's super competent, and, like, there are horrible things happening around her. But the whole time, she's just like, eh, I just really want to quit this stupid organization I'm a part of. Like, that's her main concern when people are shooting at her. And so I wasn't really sure how to take that. Like, that says a whole lot about her character and about how much she's worried about dying and how competent she is. But I had a really hard time connecting to her because she was just like, la, 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 I'm going to pick up my partner and fly away, you know? There's an element of, like, an unease with killing in her mind. It's obvious that she doesn't, you know, she doesn't enjoy doing it. And it felt like maybe there's some foreshadowing for later issues with it. But because there's no consequences for it, she still does it anyway. Like, there's no, she doesn't change her plans at all. She just, she just, she just goes and does the murder in. Good. Well, well, and even with that, we get some really conflicting signals about how she feels about murder because, like, she says that she doesn't like it, she's against it, but at the same time, she really feels like she needs to kill these people, but at the same time, she's bored by the thought of murder at one point, and then later on, she's considering killing techniques that are going to hurt the least, and so it's, I, I have a hard time understanding how she actually feels about killing and how she feels about the people that she's killing. I thought we got a lot of confusion and small things like that. See, for me there, I kind of got the sense that she was this world-weary type of person because she is indestructible or bulletproof and she kind of has to do her job. And I actually really appreciated that view. I thought it was kind of like unique for the monsters. I don't know, I was enjoying it. But I think what threw me with that view was when the toddler monster dies and she doesn't feel like a ton of grief. She she feels grief for Knox, who is the guy who rescued the toddler monster yeah. because he's sad, but she doesn't mm-hmm. feel so much sadness for the for the actual monster. We kind of have like this sociopath going on here. A little bit. Oh, a lot of it. How to feel about human emotions and people dying. And- so that wasn't intended. Maybe think about that. But if it was, awesome. You, you hit it right on the head. <laughs> Say, I don't know if it necessarily, I don't know if it can't work. Just that it needs to be consistent. And if that's what yeah, you... Yeah, I'll agree. I think it could work. It just needs to be consistent. But that depends on if that's what you're actually doing yeah. right here. If it's not, then you definitely need to put some some emotions in here of how she's feeling about the death that's happening all around her. Yeah. But I think, last I, think I was just going to add back onto what... It, it, it kind of ties into what we've been talking about, but also what Caitlin was saying, kind of just a disconnect 
between her and this backstory of her father and why she's with this organization in the first place. But we kind of get this paragraph on page one tells us she's working for Shade, this organization, and she's got this task to take down three squads. And this is the last one that she's got to do before she can before she can leave. This one paragraph kind of gives us all that information. But I feel like there are so many different ways that can engage me into her character that you could get this information across. And it doesn't have to be on the first page at all. Like, we don't need to know why she's here on the first page. If you can pull us along with enough information on the world and the action and everything, and you just string us along until you tell us a lot more heart-wrenching story of what happened to her dad and why she's doing this and how much she wants to get away rather than all this line-by-line detail of why she's here. Kind of this disconnect of purpose, really, on the first page. I had another thought that I'm going to get out there real quick. So back with the, because we're talking about the sociopath thing. So I'm not, this is, this is to be clear, this is reader response. I'm not saying you should do it this way, but I'm kind of maybe just being the cynic that I am. I'm kind of hoping that with where you look someone in the eye and it's not, it is not looking someone in the eye. Doesn't, doesn't hurt them. doesn't make them ill. It kills them in seconds, in less than seconds. And I kind of, I'm kind of hoping to see some baggage associated with living your life in such a way that you can never look someone in the eye without making them drop dead. I will second that. Yeah. 100%. Absolutely. That has to be a part of the story. I mean, like from an ancient perspective, from a market perspective, that has to be a part of her character in the, in the future of this book. Like absolutely has to come into play because that's such a human thing. Like we look people in the eye, we, when we talk to them, we connect to them by looking at them. And if there's no connection in this book, from her looking into somebody or desperately wanting to look at somebody in the eye. That's just a missing piece of this story, in my opinion. Some smaller things for me, I think Kristen mentioned this too, the organization she's a part of that's Shade. I think it's an organization, but the way she talks about it, I'm confused about what it is exactly. Sometimes it sounds like a person. Sometimes it sounds like... I have the exact same comment. I also had a problem in the early pages. It's hard to tell if the main character is a human or a legend. Like she says on the first page, she's a legend because she calls herself a monster. But other times she'll refer to the legends like they're the other, like they're something she's not, which I found confusing. One example of that is she says that there aren't very many legends lurking in this area. It makes it sound like she's not a legend. It makes it sound like she's a human. So I I guess I had a hard time figuring out who she identified with the most. Mm -hmm. So semi-connected, also kind of a minor point, though. It seemed a little odd to me that the legends would refer to themselves as legends. It makes sense that that might be a name that the humans would call them. I guess it depends on how they happened. And a really interesting thought of, of how happen like how do these creatures these humans start or yeah i don't even know if they were hurt humans that turned into creatures or if they were born this way or or just how they're all along yeah have they been there all along like that was a question that i had throughout the entire thing was was, i got i got the vibe that it was more of a been there all along type thing because there was language of a reveal somewhere and then i don't know like like the idea that there are um this isn't what they call them but like will-o'-wisps they get them trapped that she calls them something different but that that felt to me like we were drawing on older myths rather than like X-Men type yeah. situation. Well, the question that I had the whole time is is like related because these all these monsters have a human form and they spend a lot of the submission in the human form. And so I guess I want to know how they've like how do they separate the part of them that is human from the humans that they're killing? Like 
I feel like there's a lot of nuance there that would be really cool to read about. Another little thing, when she transforms the first time and she's like in the middle of this battle with humans, I think it's probably just a matter of having like big sections of description in between action. And I don't really know how to fix it. And since I'm not being prescriptive, I won't try. (laughs) I felt like a lot of time passed before these humans who are terrified of her start shooting at her. So she, it felt like a movie, you know, like those movies where people are hand-to-hand fighting and, and then the bad guys like all line up and fight the good guy one by one rather than just like shooting him from far away. Yeah. So that just might be something to look at. And then I just have a really small thing about the alias that she gives because she calls herself Samantha Winchester and that's really close to the supernatural supernatural protagonist. And I couldn't decide if it was supposed to be like a joke, like that we were in on it or if it was like, this is an accident and I accidentally named her supernatural so okay do we have any other thoughts just that i really enjoyed this one i'd be interested to see what happened next it was super fun all right well thank you so much for coming on the show ben yeah absolutely it's super fun to have you here i do want to let listeners know that our guest next episode will be the new york times bestseller karen m mcmanus who wrote one of us is lying submission soul it is a great book i'm really excited for her next one that's coming out in february i think Submissions will open on Thursday, so if you want a chance at a first chapter critique from Karen M. McManus, you'll have from Thursday until October 5th to get your first chapter to us. So remember, this is both a video and a podcast, so you can either watch us on YouTube or on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review or a comment. It helps other people find the show. If you'd like to ask us questions or tell us we're awesome or, you know, that you don't like us, please don't do that. Um, you can find us on Twitter at Lit Service or on Facebook and Instagram is at Lit Service Podcast. For Lit Service, thanks for listening and we will see you in two weeks. Bye.